Welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, GCP, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, Ryan, and Peter. Episode 163, recorded on April 27th, 2022. The Cloud Pod pushes the Azure red button. Good evening, Peter and Ryan. How are you doing? Hey, doing well. Recovering from my COVID. Oh. Yeah. I think I think I'm the only one who has not had confirmed COVID on the podcast. Yep, I believe that is. It's the case. very likely I had it. I just didn't know, but uh, <laughs> you know, because everyone else has had it so far. <laughs> At least That's what time. I said until I got it, and then I knew. And then yeah. you knew you really got it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But you know, both my both my kids and my wife got it, and I was yeah. sure I was going to get it, and I had nothing. Yeah. And so I apparently either was very asymptomatic, um, although I did so I did so isolate, so I didn't spread it. If I yeah. did have it, but. Uh, yeah. Well, uh, it's another busy week here in the cloud because uh, the summit was this week in San Francisco, uh, which mm-hmm. if you've watched the recording and you see the crowd sizes, it was not a very well attended summit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, if I was a sponsor at the summit, maybe I'd be a little bit cranky about the lack of attendance. Uh, but, yeah. you know, we're still in COVID times. You're in San Francisco, which is very, uh, you know, risk averse uh, around the COVID stuff. I think that makes sense that they were a little bit less attended than maybe they expected to be. So it, it'll be interesting to see how long it takes for that kind of stuff to recover attendance wise. I, I even expect reInvent this year will still be pretty, pretty undersized. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Which is kind of a good thing for reInvent. It got too, <laughs> it got so way too big. Yeah. It was really nice last year to go and I'm like, oh yeah, this is like six years ago, reInvent. This is nice. Yeah. There's not that many people yeah. and I, you know, you're not crushed to death in hallways. It was great. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Well, let's get into some general news. Uh, so Gartner is predicting that the public cloud services will grow 20.4% in 2022 to a total of $494.7 billion, with a B, uh, up from $410.9 billion in 2021. And they're also expecting that cloud revenue will go to $600 billion in 2023, uh, which my stock market uh, stocks say otherwise, because no one seems <laughs> to have any confidence in any of them, but that's okay. Uh, but as the cloud drives modern digital organizations, IT leaders are being more thoughtful in their choice of public cloud providers and going with those that can help them achieve their desired business and technology outcomes faster. Uh, SaaS does represent the biggest chunk of the spend at about $176.6 billion of that $494 billion. Uh, but they do uh, say I, infrastructure as a service or your Google, Azure, and uh, AWS are all growing about 30.6% in the leading uh, growth sector of this particular analysis they did. Uh, which just leads us to interesting as earnings are next week, and we'll be curious to see how, uh, how all those numbers come in. Mm-hmm. Indeed. I mean, I don't, I can't think of anyone I've talked to lately that doesn't have, you know, some workload that's either in progress of going to one of the cloud providers or they're looking at it or trying to figure out how, you know, to, to make it work now that it's already there. Like, and so I definitely see this increasing. I, I do think that, you know, as the the medium businesses and the enterprises are have adopted cloud at least in some form they are starting to sort of go we can't we gotta you know be thoughtful about this and not just unleash our developers on it yeah i think a lot of uh a lot of traditional companies sat back and watched and watched some people make some have some pretty bad experience moving to the cloud wrong and but eventually those companies are going to have to make a move we're talking to a couple of companies right now, just getting started. It's like, wow, just getting started. That's awesome. What a great time. I, mean, I wish for those greenfield opportunities at this point mm-hmm. in my career. It's like, oh, you guys <laughs> haven't done anything wrong yet? That's amazing. Yeah. 
<laughs> I know. And all the, all the ways to do it right are so much easier now than yeah. the ways to do it right 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's kind of crazy how it's all changed. Mm-hmm. And then as you know, if you're a company of size, that's acquiring other companies. Like it's, it's, you know, that you end up having to do these weird migrations of all kinds of different flavors and, and different levels of maturity and really get to see, it's almost like a time capsule going back in time. Yeah. Like I remember I did that dumb thing and I had to fix it <laughs> and you did it and you never fixed it and you survived, which means that wasn't as much of a priority as I thought. Uh, all right. Well, moving to uh, AWS news this week, uh, IAM is now allowing you to control access to resource based on the account OU or organization that contains the resource. Uh, the new way that you can control access to your resource based on the account uh, is via three new IAM policy language uh, conditions, including the AWS resource account, AWS resource graphs, and AWS resource org ID. And this new capability allows you to author those IAM policies to enable principles to access only resources inside a specific Amazon account, OU, or organization, meaning that now you can actually create an account that is in your single sign-on that only has access to a single uh, AWS organization, which is pretty great. Yeah, this is this feature lets me know how diff- difficult and complicated IAM is under the hood. Because, you know, since Organizations was released years ago, they've had this concept of OUs and IDs and, and you know, definitely had the, the idea that you should be able to sort of group those in a bucket for permissions. But then it didn't come. And so, you know, you had SCPs, you had stuff working from the outside in. But now that they've, you know, with this release, you can finally do it from within IAM natively which is great because I can use this. Which is where we always wanted it to be <laughs> from day exactly. one. It, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it just makes so much more sense. And it, it, it seems like it's going to be a lot cooler to be able to do delegation of um, responsibility by OU, especially for larger conglomerate mm-hmm. organizations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you can segregate by business unit, by product line, by prod, dev. Like You have all the options now. And you don't have to do that with, you know, SCP and things that are harder to, you know, sort of troubleshoot and diagnose and support. Or try to do it with like account tags at the account level and all kinds of weird oddities. Yeah, we're we're slowly getting to the point where uh, an account equals a project and an Mm -hmm. organization equals an account, Mm -hmm. which is where we really want it to be in the beginning. What's funny is we'll start we'll start asking for the next layer of abstraction at some point. You know, I want multiple organizations and I want. <laughs> oh, my God. Trees. Should we call them forests? Is that yeah. what they're going to be called? Yeah. And then we'll have, we'll have trust to it and we'll just recreate AD with account structures. Great. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, and what I can only describe as a confusing name, Amazon CloudWatch is now available for Ray on EC2. Not to be confused with X-Ray, which is not the same thing. I had to go research this earlier. Uh, it's an open source framework to build and scale distributed applications. And with Amazon CloudWatch for Ray, you can now deploy your Ray applications in production on Amazon EC2 and monitor their health with near real-time metrics, logs, and alarms. Uh, the release highlights also include support for extended EC2 metrics, Ray metrics, and Ray logs integration with CloudWatch. And if I knew what Ray was, I'm sure I'd be super excited about this, but I don't know what X-Ray is either. And so I'm just going to continue my hatred of all things Ray. <laughs> I haven't heard of anybody using Ray as a framework. 
I will admit to I'm researching it live because I have no idea what this is. And I am going through the web page and I still have no idea what it is, but pretty sure it has something to do with uh, machine learning. I mean, yeah, it starts out with scaling Python made simple for any mm-hmm. workload on the Ray website. And then the choose a workload to scale. And the choices are deep learning, hyperparameter tuning, reinforcement learning, data processing, model serving, and general Python apps. And the only one of those six I know is general Python apps. So, yeah, I'm going to guess you're probably right. Yeah. It, yeah, I'm a little confused on what this is but i'll look into it because maybe i could use it maybe maybe this isn't my next implementation maybe so you never know doubt it i doubt it is it just an agent uh it's a framework first of all so the framework ties into cloudwatch through via agents and through different methodologies to get the data to cloudwatch but i mean one way it's a way to just expend spend a lot of money on extended ec2 metrics for cloudwatch or custom metrics (laughs) so it's a great great revenue source for amazon yeah yeah. Smart. For other tools that I will not be using, uh, the Amazon SageMaker serverless inference capability uh, announced in December 21 is now generally available. Uh, AWS tells us that ML practitioners have asked for a fully managed ML inference option that lets them focus on developing the inference code while managing all things infrastructure. SageMaker now makes that ability easy. Since this preview announcement, they also deliver additional support for the SageMaker Python SDK and the, ST, uh, the SageMaker model registry. And with the general ability, they also now increase the maximum concurrent invocations per endpoint limit to 200 from 50 during preview, allowing you to use Amazon SageMaker serverless inference for high traffic workloads. And if I knew what anything in ML was, I would also be super excited about this, I'm sure. <laughs> well, I, I, you know, it does make the management of infrastructure of, you know, serverless, you know, not a thing. And the only people that I know that are using SageMaker are, you know, data scientists. And I know how much they care for managing their infrastructure, which is also nothing. So this is good. <laughs> Are they, so you're saying they're usually not like well patched? <laughs> no. Yeah, with, like with, with cable ties on all yeah. of the on all the cables in between the yeah. boxes. Yeah, the Jupyter notebook password is you know written down on a whiteboard in the central office, <laughs> and yeah, it's cool. It just has access to all the prod data. Yeah, what's wrong? It seems that? like a perfect managed service. Mm-hmm. Perfect managed service. All right, well, then the summit happened, and at the summit, they announced nothing new, but they did announce a ton of things that went general available. <laughs> well, actually, there was a few new things, just not on main stage, so I'm glad we didn't do any predictions, because we would have all lost. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, there was a couple of things announced in, uh, in breakout sessions, and then several GA announcements we'll cover today. So uh, AWS Migration Hub Orchestrator, which is a new migration orchestration capability with customizable workflow templates, uh, which is in addition to their AWS Migration Hub they launched in 2017, which was a single location for cloud migrations and modernization, giving you the tools you need to accelerate and simplify your journey with AWS. With the Migration Hub, you can discover or import your on-premise server details, building a migration strategy with right-sizing recommendations, track migrations across multiple tools, and a simple dashboard, which none of it is simple if you ever tried to do it, but you know, I appreciate they try. <laughs> Now, with the orchestrator, uh, which you can use to reduce the migration costs and time by removing many of the manual tasks that the old tool required you to do, uh, this now simplifies or manages your dependencies between different tools and provides visibility into the migration progress. And with the first release, it supports either migration of SAP NetWeaver-based applications with HANA databases, which is none of us, and the reposting, uh, re-hosting of any application using AWS Application and Migration Service, which is probably the majority of us. Uh, so, you know, this is uh, potentially a great way to help you get migrated to the cloud. I wonder how you get your own workflow template in that library. I think you you just write it and put it in there. No, I mean like like so that other people can access your template. Like if you're a ISV, 
Oh, I don't know. Yeah, can, you, can you sell them on Marketplace? Because that'd be, that'd be no, no, no. That's a good question. It sounds like a feature request. If it yeah, feature exist, request. Yeah. Marketplace. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sounds like it to me. Yeah. Uh, the next announcement at uh, Summit was the DevOps Guru for Serverless uh, has added, uh, or so there's a new capability for Amazon's DevOps Guru, which is nothing about DevOps and nothing about gurus, but it allows developers to improve the operational performance and availability of serverless applications. Of course, DevOps Guru was a fully managed AI ops service that automatically detects and alerts customers about application issues and helps them to improve their application availability. And so the DevOps Guru for Serverless is all of that, but also helps developers using Lambda automatically detect anomalous behavior at the functional level and use ML-powered recommendations to remediate any issue that are detected. And the DevOps Guru Serverless is available in any AWS region where DevOps Guru is available. And now the Guru can tell you that your code sucks too. <laughs> no, not only does it tell me that my code sucks, but it tells me that there's no way the invocation limits I have are right or or that this will have a network path to something else, right? Like, I'm hoping that's... We'll see what that is. <laughs> is there pricing on that? I always wonder if these ML-based tools... There is pricing on it. It's DevOps Guru, so I know it's expensive. <laughs> it's got to be, right? Yeah. Going to the page, I will tell you, Amazon DevOps Guru is... 0.0028 cents per hour, per resource per hour. Per resource per hour. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, which on a Lambda function, I would assume, are they rounding up for that? Or is that, I don't know. I'd have to read this a little further than I can right now in, in five minutes of internet research. Uh, but, uh, that was yeah, good, though. Be, yeah. Good job. Yeah. Yeah. Good job for the guru to tell you your code sucks. <laughs> Uh, another feature we talked about at reInvent is that we don't understand anything about it is now generally available, and that's the IoT Twin Maker, which Ryan has twins, and so this is you yeah. know crowding in on his space. Yeah, uh, yeah. And you know since we don't really know anything about what you use this for, uh, your hosts have let you down once again. But uh, luckily, <laughs> I do have a quote from Amazon, which will hopefully shed some light on to, to you about what this thing is supposed to do. And the quote comes from Michael McKenzie, General Manager of IoT at AWS. Sensors for equipment, buildings, and industrial processes are proliferating and generating massive amounts of data. Customers are increasingly eager to use that data to optimize their operations and processes, and one way to do that is using digital twins. But, but they find that building a digital twin and custom application is difficult, time-consuming, and prohibitively expensive to maintain today. With AWS IoT TwinMaker, customers can now derive previously unavailable insights about their operations that inform real-time improvements to their buildings, factories, industrial equipment, and production lines, and make accurate predictions about system behavior with minimal effort. He didn't help me either, but I, he, no. it was a good attempt. Yeah, because on one hand, I think this is just like a second data set, but on the other hand, I think that the, somehow they're doing like digital representation of the signals that are coming out of these manufacturing machines, which I think is more likely what it actually is, which is neat. Yeah. But I, you know, not in the manufacturing space, so I don't have it. Yeah. My take is that you basically create a digital representation of the thing. And then you want to, you want to try different ways you're going to interact with the thing. And so this allows you to kind of like a B test different ways to interact with the thing, I guess. But Yeah. yeah, it's, it's a bit, opaque to me because again it's not my space but uh and if listeners know the real answer they could leave <laughs> it in the slack channel <laughs> <laughs> or help us out send an email to ryan at the cloudpod.net <laughs> yeah uh another ga announcement uh aws amplify studio which is a simplified tool for front and back end development for web and mobile applications uh, of course, a key feature for the integration is with Figma, which helps designers and front-end developers work closely on collaborative design and development tasks. 
not only does it help with the developing the front and back end of the application, though, it also gets you access to Amplify hosting services, Amplify fully managed CI/CD, and hosting service for scalable web apps. Uh, the service offers a zero configuration way to deploy the application by simply connecting to a Git repository with a built-in continuous integration and deployment workflow. And deployment artifacts can be deployed via AWS CDK, making it easy to add support for other AWS services unavailable directly within the Amplify Studio. And I have another quote from Amazon here with from Ken Exner, director of AWS Developer Tools. Developers tell us that they want tools that help make them more productive when building an AWS without sacrificing the precision they need to deliver tailored experiences to their end users. With AWS Amplify Studio, we are extending the same fast, flexible backend development process and experience that customers love when using AWS Amplify to the UI creation process so they can build feature-rich web applications with minimal coding. AWS Amplify Studio is a game changer for any developer building web applications on AWS because it enables greater productivity without compromising control throughout the application development process. And after I read all this, I really want to play with this. <laughs> That's all I know. Really? Because I go the other way. I'm like, oh, so this is this is making up for your shortcomings of this managed platform because it doesn't do all the things. And you're going to continue to sort of make these things available when you could just use the, the services natively. Spoken like a true back-end developer who's <laughs> never had to deal with front-end and graphic designers. <laughs> true. Very true. Well, an announcement that I've been waiting for for over a year. Amazon Aurora Serverless V2 is now generally available. Now, when they announced the Serverless V2 was coming, they didn't tell me the thing that I actually wanted was in that announcement. But I learned through back channel at reInvent that it was. And that is that the GA of Aurora Service V2 also supports MySQL 8. Oh. Hey. Which is important to me for one reason and one reason only, because the back end for the CloudPod website runs on MySQL 8. <laughs> and <laughs> while I like to say that we're a bastion of web traffic and that we have a ton of it and all those things, um, we also have a very heavy caching layer on top of it. And so most of the things that people use with our website, we don't actually need the database until I go and update a new episode or update something else on the website. And so we can save a ton of money for the CloudPod with this feature. So we're super excited about this. And I will be doing a thing uh, sometime in the next month where I'll actually get this moved over to the MySQL uh, backend. And we'll see how it works. And if the CloudPod website Excellent. goes really slow, just blame Amazon. It'll be their fault. Yeah, it'll be fine. <laughs> it'll be fine. Uh, the nice thing about the new Aurora Service V2, though, for those of you who are using V1, uh, is much more scalable, fault-tolerant, and highly available across multiple regions, as well as it supports the new uh, Amazon Aurora global database capabilities, which allow you to uh, run your Aurora database in a global uh, way, sort of like Spanner. Uh, and it also now supports Postgres SQL 13, as well as that MySQL 8 support. Uh, and I have a uh, quote here from Swami Siva Subramanian, Vice President of Database Analytics and Machine Learning at AWS. Amazon Aurora is the first relational database built from the ground up for the cloud. And today, more than 100,000 customers choose to run their database workloads on Amazon Aurora because it delivers the performance and availability of the highest grade commercial databases at one tenth the cost. With the next generation of Amazon Aurora Serverless, it is now even easier for customers to leave the constraints of old guard databases behind and enjoy the immense cost savings of scalable on-demand capacity with all the advanced capabilities in Amazon Aurora. Yeah. Leave the old guard database behind, but yet use the old guard database interface. Sure. Okay. Hey, nothing says success like SQL, like okay. a SQL interface. We know that. It's a rule. It's a rule, for sure. Yeah. And I will say, like, I've started, I've pivoted, you know, smaller internal services to using serverless Aurora. Mostly on Postgres, not so much on MySQL. And, you know, it. I haven't had any complaints. No one really noticed, which I think no news is good news in there. And so, like, while, you know, it's not very high traffic workloads, mainly internal processes and just data storage, pretty, pretty stoked to not have to pay for a, a database, even a small one, all the time. 
Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's the sad thing about, you know, cause again, like use a lot of caching in front of the website because it's, it's WordPress and you don't want to, you know, <laughs> have a lot of stuff actually hit WordPress mm-hmm. directly. And so caching is our friend. Uh, and so, yeah, the database doesn't do a lot most of the time. And so you're uh, even paying for a T2 micro RDS instance is kind of expensive for the amount of usage that we have on. So I'm, I'm super excited to see what it costs us to run the cloud pod on it. Mm-hmm. Cause I, I think it could save us a chunk of change, which I'd appreciate because mm-hmm. it comes out of my personal pockets. Did you do any testing on, on the uh, time to spin up the first uh, request? So that was one of the problems with the original version of the serverless Aurora uh, that they have allegedly yeah. fixed in serverless Aurora v- v2. That's why I did caveat that if the website suddenly seems slower to you, it's because of serverless and blame Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> that's it's kind of it's it's kind of it's tough because you think okay, the less my workload is used, the more of fit for serverless it is, but then the more likely your request is going to be the first one. Like mm-hmm. every request is the first one. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah, I'm definitely going to, uh, I don't have a dev environment for the CloudPod website, but I was going to spin one up because that's what good DevOps people do. Uh, and I was going to have a dev environment and I was gonna, maybe going to see if I get up to production level and then maybe A-B test it and see you know, some metrics. Cool. How users are doing. Because uh, I do worry about that issue as well. The cold start penalty could be high. <laughs> Hey everyone, Jonathan here. I just wanted to take a minute to thank the cloud consulting gurus at Foghorn for helping make the cloud pod possible. These folks truly get it. Cloud consulting experts since 2008, they are premier tier partners with AWS, Google Cloud Platform Silver, and Microsoft Azure partners. From multi-cloud to containers to moving full production workloads to the cloud under the tightest compliance, Foghorn's team of full-stack cloud engineers have been there, done that, gotten the t-shirt, and are ready to share their experience with you. If you're in the market for some talent to supplement your team, visit www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod foghorn the promise of cloud delivered all right moving to gcp they have added a capability to their service catalog uh, that now supports multiple terraform versions for the google service catalog uh, the version selected is used by the service catalog to perform the deployment, ensuring end users enjoy a seamless experience when deploying a service catalog Terraform solution. And this feature enables both the admins and the platform to take advantage of the most recent capabilities available in Terraform, allowing them to quickly address any compliance concerns that may be present in previous versions without breaking everything. Break everything. <laughs> so it's like on a, on a product or service-by-service service basis, you could pick which version of Terraform. Yep, is exactly. Going to make my or you could have or you could offer the same work. thing, but in multiple versions. That way, if you have people who are, you know, using the older version of Terraform still for other reasons, they can still leverage your new modules as long as you're publishing them in multiple formats. Um, yeah. So there's there's lots of capabilities that are kind of nice about it, um, and it's really just about adding versioning capability to your your service catalog, which is a great thing to do, anyways. So, but it's really about the fact uh, that Terraform has introduced all those breaking changes so many times over its history. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. yeah, that's it's getting kind of ridiculous, actually. <laughs> yeah, as the maintainer of several modules and Terraform providers. Yeah, yeah, it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Getting real tired. <laughs> that's all I know. Uh, all right. Well, uh, in a few minutes, we're going to talk about Oracle, uh, where they're going to rave about their VMware offerings. And Google saw this uh, and posted their own seven reasons why the Google Cloud VMware engine stacks up. Uh, and 
because uh, we talk about Google first, they get their chance to argue first. <laughs> so uh, we will talk about them real quick here. So they're saying their VMware offering provides seven things that are awesome. Number one, dedicated 100 gigabits uh, of network traffic per second by east, west, and north, south. Four nines of availability. Global networking without complex routing. <coughs> Amazon. Uh, integrated <laughs> multi-VPC networking. Unified cloud integrated model. Flexibility and third-party ecosystem compatibility, and dense nodes with high storage core and memory core ratios, and faster provisioning. So remember all those as we get to Oracle mm-hmm. after we get through Azure, because mm-hmm. again, Oracle's at the end. <laughs> <laughs> hey, there, if there's something in the Oracle section, that's that's new. It's awesome. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Azure is announcing a new collaboration with Red Button. Uh, which I had no idea what Red Button was, and I just thought it was really cool that there's something called Red Button in Azure. But there's actually a company called Red Button that they have partnered with uh, to help you with your DDoS attack preparedness. Um, so this is one of those areas that I actually didn't know this company existed, and I actually am kind of excited about this uh, because you spend a lot of money investing in DDoS protection, waiting for the day that you actually get to test the DDoS protection. And that day may be tomorrow or maybe six years from now. You have no idea, and you're paying a lot of money to your DDoS protection company to hoping for the best. Uh, but with Red Button, you can now uh, plan and prepare for a DDoS attack at a crucial to well-vetted incident management response plan. And Microsoft is announcing with the collaboration that you can now go through three steps. A planning session, a controlled DDoS attack against your Azure infrastructure, and a fun, full summary and recommendation report at the end of it. In addition, the Red Button offers two other service suites that they can complement the DDoS testing uh, service suite, including an annual service that includes DDoS testing, hardening, team scale development, and incident response services, and a DDoS incident response plan uh, that you can invoke when your incident response occurs uh, for a real DDoS attack, and they will help you with the mitigation, the attack, the auditing, and much, much more. So uh, I didn't know this company existed. I will be checking them out, though, for my day job because uh, DDoS is hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Really shows you the power of you know, of partnership, right? Because I was having the same the same thoughts immediately when reading this. Like, oh, there's finally some easy button for for testing these things. Because you know, you always dream about like maybe I could create my own DDoS situation, which you know, seemingly I do occasionally on accident, <laughs> but uh, but intentionally would be nice this time. Without without intentionally without the risk of the FBI knocking on your door. <laughs> <laughs> can you imagine being red button and you're like okay i'm gonna go to amazon i'm gonna go to asia i'm gonna go to, to google and i'm gonna ask them to to sell me compute resources and they're like what are you gonna do with them well we're gonna launch a massive bot attack against our customers <laughs> yeah. i'm sure that was a fun yeah. conversation i bet that one got escalated to a CISO somewhere yeah. like wait a minute <laughs> yeah um, but uh, yeah maybe against our terms and services yeah maybe i'm sure they had to have a special writer for this one uh if they're on the cloud mm-hmm. which I, I would suspect they are they have to be right Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then one of the, the issues that's been happening across the cloud is the issue with domain fronting. Domain fronting is a pretty popular attack vector, which is where you uh, point a DNS to a bucket or to a CDN that you then forget about and deprovision and then leave this hole in your network where now an attacker can use your DNS or your URL to basically host a website that looks like yours uh, and potentially steal or scrape your data. Uh, and so effective April 29th, which is uh, end of this week, you'll be able to stop allowing domain front behavior on Azure Front Door, Azure Front Door Classic, and Azure CDN Standard from Microsoft. Uh, and to enable this capability, you open a support request, which is the best way to enable any feature, and provide your subscription and Azure Front Door ID. And upon enable to blocking domain fronting behavior, the Azure Front Door service will block any HTTP request that exhibits the fronting behavior. Like, why would you want to allow... Yeah, this like why is this a choice? 
I don't understand why you have to opt into this service. Yeah, Yeah, I don't get that either. It should be on by default, in my opinion. Yeah, just turn it on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because this specific attack, like I was trying to think of the proper like metaphor to compare this to, because it is like I don't know what the lowest of the low scum is, you know, for you know this, but this is one for me. Like I hate this attack. It is just dumb, and it just causes a lot of grief, and there's very little return for it. Mm-hmm. And you know, and so I'm glad that they because this is this is hard to find. It's hard to track from an internal security perspective or an infrastructure perspective, um, unless you do command and control, which is you know has its own limitations. So this is I like seeing this being added to the platform level. Yeah, I think AWS has added similar capabilities. I think Google as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, it's definitely a big problem that attackers have seemed to figure out how to exploit pretty well, and so they're. Mm-hmm. Definitely something that they want to fix. Uh, well, Gardner was here with us earlier talking about the growth in the cloud. And here they're back with us with Oracle, where they're actually throwing a little shade at you, the Oracle customer. So if you're an Oracle <laughs> customer, they're saying you don't get it that moving to the cloud means a business transformation. Uh, and I partially think this means that Gardner didn't get their monthly payment from Oracle because, <laughs> you know, it seems a little weird. But uh, Gardner is reporting that big business users of Oracle are failing to understand that moving applications to the cloud means a business transformation full of perils and organizational complexity, not just a technical project. Uh, Gardner does say that Oracle's cloud application products are maturing, which means they got the check halfway through the article. But their customers haven't grasped what it all means to them, and enterprises transitioning cannot customize their software anymore in Oracle Cloud, only adjust the configuration itself, which means the customizations you ran on your business on-prem will now need to be rethought and retransformed as you move to the cloud. Uh, SAP and Oracle have both been very vocal that customers won't have the customizations they're used to on-premise, and that is that is not how the cloud works, as they say. I mean, I agree with Gardner. I, I don't think most businesses are approaching the problem correctly. They're they're trying to get the the benefits of you know elasticity and scaling, but the reality is always somewhere you know south of that right it's that's part of the sales pitch but not part of the reality and most times in bigger migrations that i've been a part of the business isn't ready to transform they haven't you know talked to all elements of the business you know tech support customer support you know finance you have to change your entire like way you do your financials and you know a lot of times that hasn't happened and they do think that this is like a migration almost from one location to another and it's not or if it is, you're probably so, not going to get the value uh, that was promised if you do it that way. It, it's interesting, though, too, though, because I think it it's actually going to end up causing a lot of additional pressure on these companies, too, to deliver features to, uh, to their customers. Because the reason why these customizations exist is because either the business process that they have doesn't match the standard, which that one they should fix anyways. But a lot of the times it's just how they need to you know, how they need to do business or how they need to work in their particular vertical industry. Um, and some of those customizations are valid, but, you know, there may not be something that every customer needs. Um, you know, I'm sure that, you know, not every customer is McDonald's who needs to know how to ship French fries globally <laughs> at a global scale, right? Like, that's not a problem every company has. And so there's there's a very small market for those six or seven companies that have that massive logistical problem. Uh, and so they just build it as a customization because you have the platform to do that. But now you're you can't do that customization. Now you have to go to SAP or Oracle and say, hey, I need you to build this module that helps me ship French fries across the globe in a more easy transactional way. And, and the ROI for SAP is not very good. <laughs> so it's going to be interesting how some of that transitions over time. Um, 
as you know, some people have tried the Salesforce way where you build your own programming language and you have still support customization in the SaaS layer, but that's, you know, Salesforce has had problems because of that as well. It's not always a perfect solution either. Yeah, it's really about those companies figuring out what their differentiated services are and they're going to have to invest their own time and money in building those systems and what services are, can they get away with uh, the standard product? And all us small businesses have had to go through that for years and we all have to deal with the little quirks of logging into your time tracking SaaS application and features are different today and no one mentioned it to you. <laughs> they're going to change. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, Oracle uh, dropped this article that uh, caught my eye, not because of what the article's about, but because of what the article means. So OCI, uh, Oracle Cloud, has committed to a 100% renewable energy goal by 2025, which is a pretty aggressive goal. Uh, And the article goes on to say that the reason how they're able to do this is because they're partnering with environmentally conscious data center providers, which explains the question of how they're growing regions so quickly compared to their counterparts, because they're not building buildings or data centers they're just taking advantage of Equinix or Switch or Lumen or Evoke or whatever other data center colo they can find in whatever region of the globe they're in, and they throw in a few Oracle racks, and now they have an Oracle region, which I guess is a, probably a good way to kind of litmus test your region, and then maybe at some point you decide, now I want to actually build a real data center and move my workloads. Um, but yeah, so that, uh, that answers the question that you've sort of been joking about with garages, but maybe it's not quite garages, just colos. So I, I have a completely different take because we were talking about the mobile data centers and and how quickly Oracle seems to do this. I think it's just Teslas. It's all just Teslas. They're running their data centers out of Teslas. They're running the data centers in the Teslas? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> 100% renewable. Are they the same ones they use to give people rides at the AWS yeah. Summit or the reInvent that year? Yeah. yeah. Your region capacity will go down during reInvent because they need those cars. <laughs> Uh, and as I teased earlier in the show, Oracle Cloud VMware Spring Release is now available. The Spring Collection uh, is fashionable, strutting down the runway with all kinds of new features, including the E4 dense bare metal AMD Epic processors, support for the OCI file storage or secondary storage that scales up to 8 exabytes, a shelled VMware instance to prevent ransomware attacks, integrations with OCI monitoring and OCI notification services using email, PagerDuty, and Slack, and VMware product validations for vRealize, Cloud Management, Site Recovery Manager, Horizon, and Tanzu, all in your spring collection from Oracle Cloud VMware. Woo! I think you should also do the next one. (laughs) Uh, And then, because they announced the new amazing spring collection of VMware features, including the new dense bare metal, they then took the time to bash their favorite competitor, AWS. Yes. Well, they did not give us seven benefits of their VMware offering, but they did point out one big one against AWS. Oracle VMware offering is available in more regions than anyone else. Oracle, of course, doesn't provide you any magic sauce for VMware. And so it's the most uh, the only service that doesn't devalue the investment you made in your learning of VMware. Remember that. All those mm. other cloud providers are devaluing your skill set. Now, that's some... That's Jerks. Some, yeah. That's some far right, <laughs> some far right wording if I ever saw it. Uh, Oracle, <laughs> but now Oracle says they provide you the most cost-effective VMware solution on the cloud. And to give you the example of that, they tell you how expensive it is to run on VMware. So if you have the 128 core configuration, Oracle Cloud VMware uh, has per core pricing advantage of 2.1 times versus the VMware uh, AWS VMware Cloud. Uh, so Oracle Cloud comes in at $93.60 per CPU core, while AWS comes in at $193.04 per CPU core. 
On the RAM side, they're also cheaper uh, at 5.3 times uh, more expensive on AWS. Oracle price for gigabyte RAM, $2.28. AWS price for gigabyte RAM, $12.06. And finally, one DR capability for terabytes of storage. Uh, AWS is $202.31, and Oracle is only $86.02. And all I can think of is you just poked Amazon to give a price cut. So I expect <laughs> to see that anytime in the next three to four weeks. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't necessarily trust their math, but assuming that their math is reasonably correct, uh, it seems like a good market for Oracle to go after. Uh, yeah. You know, If you're going to try to compete with those three platforms, I don't see a ton of people moving VMware uh, straight to the cloud on VMware, but that's a pretty uh, compelling argument if and, and potentially a, a way of getting VMware customers to the cloud quicker say hey let's just do it now if we don't have to get off of vmware well and of course the oracle customers don't understand transformation so going to vmware on or oci makes perfect sense yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> uh yeah there you go that's a oracle uh, a vmware a solution and then you heard about google's earlier and then aws uh you know, i wonder if some of this pricing is pretty pretty early in the vmware aws relationship as well and so you know i imagine it's a situation where they keep selling it to some percentage of people at these high prices and they just AWS doesn't really want you to go that route so they're just keeping the price high on purpose uh, but now that's being used as a competitive uh, advantage by OCI I can see them changing their tune pretty quickly they'll probably wait till they lose one customer <laughs> <laughs> or they have a really bad earnings call one of the two Yeah. alright and now we're off to the TCP lightning round all right, AWS announces general availability of open Cypher support for Amazon Neptune. Isn't Neptune still not generally available? So isn't that sort of weird to have an add-on service that is? That's right. When you look into what the add-on service is, it's just an easier way to SQL query a graph database. So, okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> More SQL. <laughs> Love it. EC2 auto scaling now lets you set a default instance warm up time for all instance scaling and replacement actions. Which didn't they already have with you know <sighs> desired number of instances? Like this is a weird one. <laughs> I don't like you're, you're just making it words now, Amazon. Come on. Yeah. No, but well, this I, is I, default. I, this is default, <laughs> not desired. Default. <laughs> not even half the letters are the same. Sure. Okay. Yeah. I, I suspect this is one of those things that I, I will need this feature at one point, but I will implement this feature and then I'll be immediately looking to change everything so I no longer need this feature. Like I've already dug myself a hole at this point. <laughs> How about Amazon Kendra uh, now uh, released Box Connector to enable search on documents in Box Enterprise, repo- Enterprise repositories? No one puts Kendra in the box. Uh, Amazon Macy since we're going with all the funky names adds support for discovering more types of sensitive data I mean (laughs) in the box on that one too (laughs) sensitive data (laughs) (laughs) add support you know like you mean the service that Discover sensitive data now discovers more sensitive data. Like, great announcement. More, yeah. more types. Yeah. Uh, yeah apparently HTTP now, basic it, authentication headers, HTTP yeah. cookies, JSON web tokens, all the good stuff. Yeah. Could you, I don't know, couldn't you have made that more like group that into some sort of common thing where it would have made more sense? I don't know. 
Yeah. I mean, it'd be nice now that you can now point out your S3 bucket and find all the places where your developers put JWT tokens and static mm-hmm. files. So, yeah, I mean, especially if you've got S3 <laughs> logging or, or ALB log. <laughs> Light up some dashboards with that this weekend. <laughs> well, Amazon SES version two now supports email size of up to a staggering 40 megabytes for inbound and outbound emails by default. I mean, considering it used to be 10 megabytes, that's a four times increase. Uh, but really, like if you're emailing 40 megabit files and you don't know what S3 is, why are you using Amazon? Are you an Oracle customer? <laughs> This is like the backward compatibility thing. Mm-hmm. I didn't even know there was another version of SES. Like, is this like a new thing? Never even heard of this. Uh, it has to do with like, yes, there, yeah, it exists. Yeah. It's something, yeah. don't worry about it. How about that? Yeah, yeah, I'm good. <laughs> we also got a new AWS wavelength zone in Toronto, which is the first in Canada. A boot time. <laughs> oh. How do you compete with that? It's, yeah, no. It's good. You don't. You lose. You yeah, lose. Yeah. That's what you do. You lose. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> that wraps it up. Ryan is the loser. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I won't name the winner. I'll just say Ryan is the loser. <laughs> I mean, I almost feel like you should get negative points for that, that performance. It was it was sad. <sighs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and I remember my joke for Open Cipher. Now there was a, I had a matrix joke in there somewhere that I forgot about. Ah, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, all right. Well, you know, for things that are coming up in the cloud, the summit in San Francisco is over, so it means all the rest of the summits are going to be boring. So if you are not new to the <laughs> AWS cloud, don't go to them unless you want to learn something or hopefully get a chalk talk and like do the, and take advantage of the chalk talks and the live sessions where you get to talk to an engineer. That's what yeah. the summits will be beneficial to you. Skip the sessions as they're all on YouTube, anyways. Uh, and you also might get COVID if you go. So just be careful yeah. if you're going to continue going down that path. Uh, but uh, there are other summits coming up that are virtual. So May 4th is the Google Workspace Summit, which is all things Google Mail, Google Apps, uh, all the Googleists, all the Googliness. And then May 17th is the Google Security Summit coming up very quickly. And then June 9th is the Applied Machine Learning Summit. Uh, maybe I can actually learn something about Applied ML, and we will be more educated for our future episodes. And then the uh, Microsoft Security Summit is coming up May 12th. KubeCon EU is right around the corner. It's already May, guys. Can't believe it. Uh, May 16th to 20th, KubeCon EU kicks off. And then DevOps Enterprise Summit Virtual Europe, May 10th to the 12th as well. And then at the end of May, we head into RSA and Remars from Amazon. Lots of great stuff coming up. Check it out in the show notes uh, when you have a few minutes. And if you uh, had booked that trip to Reinforce in Houston, you need to cancel those tickets because it did get moved to Boston uh, June 28th through the 29th. Uh, but I hope you got a memo by it from Amazon by now. I did not sign up for Reinforce. I'm going to watch that one remotely. Mm-hmm. But uh, we'll see what they come out with this year. Maybe maybe it'll be more worthwhile to go in the future since they've had two years to learn from their sins of the past. So there you mm-hmm. go. And that is it for another fantastic week in the cloud. Have a good one, Ryan and Peter. All right. Have a good weekend. Yeah. You too. Bye, everybody. And that is the Week in Cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Foghorn Consulting. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and tweet us your feedback at hashtag thecloudpod. Or join our Slack channel, go to our website, thecloudpod.net, for sign-up instructions. Mm-hmm.